We have a lot of listeners and readers at Tech Emergence who tune into our work in heavy industry and manufacturing. As it turns out, there's not that much in-depth coverage as to specifically how artificial intelligence is changing the game in those specific spaces. And so we not only get requests to speak at conferences, but particular requests from folks that work in heavy industry domains that might be leveraging robotics or need predictive analytics who ask to learn more things. And so when I did a deep dive for our artificial intelligence in Boston article, by the way, if you haven't seen that yet, you can search Boston in the search bar at techemergence.com and see what I I hope to be easily the the most in-depth analysis of sort of the artificial intelligence ecosystem in Boston. What are its strengths and weaknesses? What kinds of businesses could it serve? What kind of businesses maybe is it not the right fit for? I think that that article turned out pretty well. Um, When I did that piece, I decided we need to include physical robotics in here somewhere. And who better from the Boston area than Rodney Brooks? Many of you who are sort of in the robotics field at all, even follow robotics sort of handles on Twitter, will be aware of who Rodney is. Um, Rodney is a former director of the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. He's a founder and former CTO of iRobot, which has over a thousand employees in Boston. They're the makers of that very famous Roomba robot, among many other innovations. And he's also co-founder, chairman, and CTO at Rethink Robotics, uh, which is the company he runs now, which has over a hundred employees in the Boston area working on their own sort of branch of robotics. And in this particular interview, I speak with Rodney about Uh, What has changed in the last five years or so with robotics? How are robots more capable now than they were before? Uh, And what does the next five years ahead look like? Rodney talks about sort of the safety factors around robotics, the policies that may change around that, the new kinds of tasks that robots may be capable of doing. And I think if anybody's qualified to sort of paint a bit of a future picture of what will robots be able to do that they can't now, uh, it's Dr. Brooks here. So I, I think he, he paints an adequate picture for essentially anybody who has a factory or a warehouse and is considering maybe robots in their future. I, I think we'll have their eyes opened a bit about what direction robots are moving in, what is very very likely to safely still stay out uh, of the realm of robotics, and, and which things will sort of enter that realm and now become uh, possible thanks to the, the sort of innovations in this space. So without further ado, this is Rodney Brooks here on AI and Industry with me, Dan Fagella, and without further ado, we'll dive right in. So Rodney, where I wanted to start us off here is about sort of the current possibilities in industrial robotics. I know for myself, I don't really work very often in a factory setting. So when I think industrial robots, I think about the videos you might have seen in the 80s or 90s with the giant robotic arm in a Toyota factory. But clearly, there's been a lot of shifts in the last decade, maybe even five years on what's possible in industrial robots. What would you say are some of the most important changes in that last maybe half decade as to what we can do? So in truth, most industrial factories that have robots look a lot like they did in the 80s and 90s, but there are two new things happening. One is collaborative robots where people and robots can be in the same space, which didn't happen five years ago. And the second is mobility in the factory using the SLAM technologies, simultaneous localization and mapping. I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah. Collaborative robots. What we've seen in the last five years is a whole class of robots by many manufacturers that small but 
are safe enough to be right next to. So you don't need to have them in a cage. You can have people and robots sharing the same space. That is a big difference. What it makes harder, though, is that when people are in the same space as a robot, people are messy. They don't put the part in the same place every yeah. time. They move stuff around. So to take advantage of that, the robots have to be much smarter, use vision, figure out where stuff is, and use force sensing to find something and place it. So we're seeing a real revolution, again, from multiple manufacturers in terms of those robots. And this could be interesting just to grab one quick example. I know you see a million of these, so I think this would be maybe our best opportunity to do so. This idea of collaborative robots, of working on the same floor with a human, I imagine this could be in building something and refurbishing something. This could be a million different examples. I'm trying to think of a circumstance, and, and I, I not that many great ones come to mind for me, where a human and a robot might need to be, where it would behoove a business to put them both together if possible. What's maybe an example of where so that would be needed? They have hundreds of people on the shoulder doing tasks. But some of those tasks are really dull and repetitive. Yeah. And more and more problems getting enough labor in China. If they could replace the really simple-minded tasks with uh, the people are doing with robots, that would be great. But if they have to have that separate from the rest of the flow, because there are hundreds and hundreds of steps, and you know, go into a cage for this step, and then out of a cage for the next step where a person is, suddenly the advantage of having robots goes away and you're better off having all people uh, uh-huh. because caging off you know, isolated parts just doesn't work. So it's the idea of, of incrementally replacing labor by simple robots doing simple tasks that are boring out of beyond belief to a person to do that means it makes sense to have robots and people in the same space. Got it. And of course, that requires, like you said, vision because humans are sort of unpredictable. And also vision, I imagine, not just to know where a human put something down, but vision to know where a human is so that we don't swing our arm at their head. That is coming and it's future work. And I'll, I'll, maybe we can get back to that. Cool. A little yeah, later. we can spin back into that one. I know you mentioned the slam as kind of a new dynamic as well. Maybe there's a touch point, an example we could use with that too. Yeah. So, you know, up until a few years ago, all mobile carts, you know, operated independently of people in factories, and there were lots of them, either followed a painted line or more likely they followed a wire embedded in the concrete floor or occasionally really special purpose reflectors, etc. which meant you had to sort of pre-program exactly where the robot was going to go and what possible paths it would take. What's happened in the last five years is people have started to deploy mobile robots, which used the SLAM technology, simultaneous localization and mapping, to build dynamic maps and then to navigate safely around the, around the factory floor, which gives you much more flexibility of when and where the robot can move. We're starting to see those deployed. Yeah. Now, is that, again, in sort of, is that most important in circumstances where we have both humans and machines, or is that even important in circumstances where it's just a bunch of machines in a row? Right now, the big difference it's making is where there's people and machines. And those carts have been used for a long time to deliver parts to the line where people are. It will become more important where there are just machines, except people aren't quite ready to go to that level of uncertainty. They're, they're, you know, it's a very conservative industry. They've got a solution that works by you know, top-down planning and figuring everything out in front. I think over time... 
as we want more and more flexible automation, we'll see that change. But for now, it's mostly where there are people involved. Got it. And it it sounds like both of these dynamics that you're addressing, these sort of shifts in the last half decade here, are maybe leading us towards a little bit of a handoff from man to machine. They're facilitating a little bit of a, of a smoother transition from you know humans doing some of these laborious jobs to being able to have machines working in somewhat of proximity and coordination. I mean, it makes sense that logically that would be the long-term transition, but is this all part of kind of extracting humans from this kind of dexterous physical work altogether, more or less? Well, let me, let me say first, none of these collaborative robots are particularly dexterous at this point. Dexterity huh. is not what we've got. We've got simple repetitive tasks still. The problem is everywhere in the world, China in particular, is there's a tremendous manufacturing labor shortage. In the US, there's a manufacturing labor shortage. Yep. You know, people don't don't have a kid and say, I hope my kid grows up to be a factory worker. It's not the aspirations of yep. an educated society. So we have, a, you know, especially for the dull, non-thinking tasks, all people are really smart and much more intelligent than any AI system we have. And I think most manufacturers are figuring out how to use the intelligence of their workers and not get them to do, you know, dull, 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 repetitive stuff. Yeah, there's definitely, well, I forget the old terminology, dull, dangerous, and something else where, where it's true. Dull, dangerous. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know who gets credit for that. I know I've heard it a couple times in the podcast over the years. Yeah, that's been around for a long time. Oh, who knows? I'll have to Google it. Anyway. In, in Japanese, it's KKK for three Japanese words. That means really? Oh, wow. There's a, there's a correlate on the other side of the world. Go figure. Anyway, all right. So good to have a, a general gist of kind of the dynamics underway now. Clearly, yeah, labor shortage, big deal. Anybody who's following kind of what's happening in China in general, kind of the potential shuffle away from urban areas obviously probably isn't making it any easier for people to fill up gargantuan factory floors to do extremely simple tasks. And clearly there's a need to do a bit of a handoff here. The future, obviously, there's there's other shifts ahead. You've seen, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of changes in, in the field of robotics in terms of how businesses are applying them. My guess is, Rodney, when you look ahead another half decade at the things that might be possible, there are future shifts that you think will be very valuable to companies that will really matter to an economy. What are some of the possibilities that really aren't things that we can do now, but that half a decade in the future you would hope we could, and, and you'd feel optimistic that maybe would, would make a tangible difference in businesses that have industrial robots? Yeah, let me, let me start first with the safety issue. Yeah. Right now, robots and people in the same space, they're fairly small robots with five, maybe 10 kilogram payloads. And that is because the inertias get large and any sort of collision when you're with a large robot is really, really bad news for people. What we're starting to see is as a result of deep learning, which deep learning I think is overhyped in general, but here's an example where it can be used. We're certainly seeing in the research arena much better tracking of human bodies from 2D cameras and 3D cameras. So being able to figure out where people are, where their limbs are, how they're moving in real time. That has not yet made onto the factory floor, but I'm pretty confident that in the next five years, we're going to see safety systems for much bigger robots relying on those perception systems, which are tracking people in real time, so that when a person gets anywhere near a big robot, it just slows down dramatically and maybe stops. That will allow the big robots 
start to be uncaged. Right now, the big robots are still in cages, separated physically from people. Having that wow. dynamic tracking is going to be really important. That's interesting. That you know, I, I guess again, not living or really sort of doing business in the factory setting very often. I'm, I'm unaware of this sort of caging dynamic. But I guess what you're saying is, if there's humans sort of in the same vicinity, there are some machines that, for safety purposes, actually have structures built around them so that people can't get close enough to be harmed. Absolutely. If you go into any car factory and the body shop, which is welding, and it's all welding robots, it is all robots and no people. And, you know, they they do not mix at all. Yep. Yep. So in terms of perception systems, maybe we'll, we'll poke a little bit into this just to really give some visuals to the people listening in who've, you know, really are unfamiliar with how these, these technologies would work. Um, in terms of what safety would involve, my guess is, you know, part of this could involve like having everybody have like a sensor in their wallet so that at least physical location, all the machines know where all the people who are on the floor are. Maybe also part of it, though, is just vision systems up in the ceilings, maybe vision systems physically on the robots so they know what's around them individually. There's some kind of sensory information being drunken in for these machines to make smarter decisions. What's the range of that new sensory information that has to be kind of accounted for to make for a safer machine working around humans to so make sure we don't have those high inertia collisions? Yeah, so let me let me give a, a range of things there. First, the idea of someone carrying something in their wallet, which identifies them, that's good, but it's not fail-safe because people forget things. And then you've got a person wandering around without their, their chirper or whatever it is that's showing yeah, they're there. Yeah. But, you, you know, if you combine that with passive camera systems, some in the ceiling, some just, you know, glued onto machines all over the place, not just the robots that self-network, self-figure out with SLAM technology where they are relative to each other, and using deep, deep networks to identify that's a person, that's where their body is. And then they notice, oh, but that person isn't also showing up with the thing in their wallet. Something's really wrong here. We got a bad situation because we got a person without their safety system on. So you combine these things and you start to get a big network of pieces all coming together, all adding to safety and all trying to be failed safe. And then you start to get safety happening. But yeah. it's too. 3D imaging, beacons or whatever it is, you know, RFID tags on people, all of these things coming together. And that's why, you know, we can do individual demos today, but we, we haven't seen someone put it into products that really make sense yet. I think they will. I think there's enough pull on this. And then, and this is what takes so long in many applications in the physical world, which I think it, people uh, in tech find frustrating. There's going to be an, a big evolution of the safety regulations. It won't just happen overnight. Huh. Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, this is interesting. I think this will be news to people. Yeah, every everything in factories, you know, OSHA in the U.S., much, much, much higher level or much more safety in, in uh, Europe. There are all sorts of safety standards, ISO standards, et cetera, which various countries subscribe to. They're put together multinationally, and they're very slow to change. And there are some, you know, interests that don't want them to change. But, you know, it, it's actually good for actual safety that they change slowly so that we don't, you know, suddenly allow something which may not have been really, really tested to the extreme. So these safety regulations evolve over time. Yep. In the case of my own company, which we started in 2008, when we started, the safety regulations 
were such that our robots today would not have been deployable. Over time, those safety regulations have evolved. And it was, you know, because we and some other companies saw a possible future, started building the robots, started showing how safe they were. And over time, over a period of almost a decade, around the world, people have come to accept that, yes, they are safe. And so we and other companies are deploying our robots now. Huh. Now, I'm trying to kind of congeal this all, and we only have one little question left, but I do want to wrap. I want to, I want to put the lid on this topic here, Rodney, and make sure that I'm picking up what you're putting down. The dynamic that you kind of addressed in the previous five years, and what I'm sort of seeing as similar moving forward is this transition of a handoff from really monotonous work from humans to machines and being able to work in proximity and actually have a, a legitimate collaboration of some kind. And it sounds like not only will that be more possible when we have multiple data points to be able to determine where a human is and what a machine can do to avoid them, but also when the safety standards adjust to accept that this is now an okay reality, to say, okay, these kinds of machines with these kinds of systems in these kinds of settings, it's okay for them to not be in a cage. Is this what you're getting at? That maybe those shifts will happen as well once the safety kind of upticks significantly with this new sensor information. Right. Right now, all the regulations which allow for robots and people to be in the same space rely on force and speed limits. Ah. We, with this new technology, will be able to, you know, increase the range of forces and increase the range of speeds. Right now, the force and speed limits mean it has to be small robots only. can't be larger robots. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's, you can see how that would be a fitting rule to just go by force and speed. But that maybe, you know, given certain developments in technology, like you said, it'll make sense for slowly the regulations to evolve to permit for new technologies that, you know, let other machines work together. So that's that's handy. That definitely puts a good picture on things and, and lets me have a sense of what the future looks like. I think the audience will appreciate that as well. Last question I wanted to dive into, as I mentioned before we started recording, we're doing a big piece on sort of the the Boston artificial intelligence scene. I was just there doing some speaking and I stayed for like a whole week and just did a whole bunch of interviews. You and I are now catching up over Skype, but a lot of the ones I did were in person. You know, when it comes to AI in business, we see a lot of companies go out West. I did, but obviously in terms of real AI tech companies, there's a lot of folks who have. At the same time, robotics really seems to be pretty staunchly still hanging out in Boston. There's a lot of well-known companies. You guys at Rethink, you know, iRobot, Boston Dynamics, I mean, and, and plenty of other firms that are sort of in the Boston area. Why do you think it is that maybe robotics has hung out there while a lot of maybe what we could think of as sort of, you know, new, cool AI firms and startups sort of shuffle their way to the West Coast? Well, you know, we have a really strong ecosystem of universities here. MIT has re robot labs all over the Institute in, in many, many departments. But there are lots of other universities here, too, which have major robotics efforts. Harvard University, Northeastern University, Tufts University, Brandeis has some. Um, yeah. Worcester Polytech has an undergraduate major in robotics. My company employs a lot of people from WPI, UMass Amherst, et cetera. Um, and Woods Hole Oceanographic Research Institute has been a really strong place for underwater robots for a long, long time. So we've had a lot of spin-outs from all those places. And then companies like Amazon, which I, last I heard had 600 employees in Amazon Robotics here in Boston. It may be more now because that was Jeez. a couple of years ago. You know, they bought Kiva Systems yep, with yep. I mean, 100 employees, stayed here and built up because of the 
vast number of people coming out of the universities who are, you know, have lots of robotics experience and have grown that. And as interestingly, when Amazon bought Kiva, it stopped Kiva servicing a whole bunch of other customers in fulfillment. So there's a whole ecosystem, which you probably saw here, of startups in fulfillment areas for ro robots for fulfillment, you know, to try to help all the companies that are not Amazon do their fulfillment. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's had, a, you know, a multiplying effect. People are here, they saw Kiva, they, or they worked at Kiva. Now they're saying, okay, now there's room for competitors, we'll, we'll start them. So it sounds like the, the brunt of the reasoning from your perspective is the, the universities are just strong in that domain. Obviously, you know, the Bay Area has some decent universities as well, but it's nowhere near the density of the Boston area. I mean, in terms of number of universities, right? I mean, Boston is like university central, certainly of the United States, and maybe pretty close in terms of, of the world. The Bay Area, you know, you have Berkeley, you have Stanford, you have... Yeah, Berkeley and Stanford are both strong in robotics, as is now UC San Diego, USC also. But uh, the density here is much higher and in a close area. And I think it's just, uh, you know, different areas. Not all areas have to be the same in their strengths. True. Um, no, 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 completely. Yeah, I, I find it to be curious. It sounds like for you, really, the academia base is kind of maybe the, a big part of the reasoning why robotics companies tend to stay out there. Last question to wrap this up as, as we close, Rodney. You know, you probably see a lot of, you know, folks who've worked for you or who you've taught in the past who've, you know, started companies in, in the AI and robotics domain. Some of them have likely stayed on the East Coast. Some of them have gone out West. You know, I've heard all kinds of interesting arguments. So I'm not going to seed your mind with what other people have said, but interesting arguments for when it makes sense to hang out in the Boston area and when it makes sense to go West for an early stage company. Do you, do you have rules of, of thumb or maybe reasonings when one or the other tends to make sense in terms of the industry people are going into, in terms of their financing needs, in terms of anything along those lines, you know, when you're advising folks that are getting off the ground, do you have thoughts there for, you know, when hanging on the East Coast is probably a smart move and when going out West is probably a smart move? Yeah, so I don't have good rules of thumb, but I will say that robotics tends to be a longer play than many of the things that we see on the West Coast. Yep. So it requires financial institutions, and I mean by that venture capitalists, equity funds, et cetera, that are in for a long term and see as their mission to influence certain industries. And so there's there's a lot of VCs here now in the, in the Boston area that have had experience, some failures, some successes in robotics, and are able to be uh, perhaps a little more sophisticated in figuring out what's a good investment and what's maybe a flash in the pan. Yeah. So for robotics, maybe the more tentative funding needs might be a little bit more fitting for something that maybe you can get off the ground with four different laptops and just sort of boot up online. You know, maybe the quicker, higher funding and the more consumer facing stuff is, you know, makes sense that people shuffle out west. But I guess what you're getting at is the the, the longer term, longer play dynamics. There's people who are more comfortable with that on the on the East Coast. Yeah, you're going to need sustained multiple rounds of funding. You're not going to get explosive growth in the first few years. It's going to take a long time to get the product and establish the market and go through all the, you know, as I say, when you're, when you're moving tens or hundreds of kilograms around at high velocity, 
it's a very different regulatory environment than when you're just throwing bits around on the network. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're recommending the next song somebody should play on their on their phone, definitely a different level of risk. So, okay, note taken, and hopefully that'll be useful for the folks who are tuned in when we we do kind of our deeper Boston coverage on kind of the different startup ecosystems. And that's all that we had. So, Rodney, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time and sharing some of your insights here on AI and industry. So, thank you so much. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it a lot. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. When it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.